Welcome to Breaking History, a world history podcast brought to you by the Northeastern University History Graduate Student Association. I'm Adam Tomasi. I am a third year PhD student and I study the transatlantic history of the left in the 20th century. And today I have Jeff Lamson uh, on the podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm Jeff Lamson. I'm a second year PhD student in world history. Um, and my research interests are in the material culture of policing in a transnational context. So I look at uh, the stuff police use, their technologies and materials in the US and Latin America in the 20th century mostly. Fantastic, excellent topic. But today what we're gonna be talking about uh, of a shared uh, interest is the American Historical Association annual meeting that took place in New Orleans, Louisiana this year from January 6th to the 9th, 2022. And both Jeff and I attended uh, the AHA annual meeting and the focus of this episode of Breaking History will be our experiences of the AHA annual meeting, our review of it, if you will, for those who were unable to attend. I should first thank uh, Heather Street Salter from the History Department at Northeastern for sponsoring our registrations uh, to attend the annual meeting. And also uh, special thanks to the History Department as a whole for being instrumental in funding our travel and lodging. And that support makes it uh, so much easier for us as graduate students to uh, attend such important conferences as these. Uh, also for listeners, if you are interested in attending the online uh, meeting of the AHA this year because they had both an in-person meeting and then an upcoming virtual one. That's going to be taking place from February 21st through the 27th, so next month. And if you were an in-person annual meeting attendee, then it is free for you to register. Otherwise, the registration fees are listed on the AHA's website, which I believe is uh, www.historians.org. So with all that out of the way, uh, Jeff, I want to ask you for just a general comment about your experience at the conference and what it was like compared to other history conferences you've been to before virtually in person. Yeah, so I'll just start by throwing in one more thank you to the PhD network also at Northeastern, which also helped uh, sponsor some of the funding for Adam and I to both travel down there. And sort of as a, as a side note to that, I would say that if you're interested in attending these sorts of conferences, I sort of just was shooting in, in the dark, seeing if there was any funding available for us. And I think that if you, if you poke around and look, I would imagine that at a lot of places um, and within Northeastern, you can find uh, some money available to do things like this. So thanks also to everyone who helped pay for us to, to attend. I had not been to a history conference before. So this was a first one for me. I had been to the uh, LSU's graduate history conference, graduate student conference last year, Um, but I I hadn't attended anything. And so it was a great experience primarily for me. And one of the reasons I wanted to go, because I did my whole first year of, of my program entirely online. And so there's definitely been sort of a sense of uh, like a lack of connection to other, to actual people while doing this. And so from that perspective, it was really great because I got to network with some folks. I got to meet some people. I got to meet a couple of scholars whose work has been influential in shaping my own research interests. And so that's sort of like the human connection networking piece of it was great. Um, And it definitely made me excited for future conferences for that purpose. The, the number of cancellations was a little bit 
disappointing at times. You know, I think that they said that of a conference that's normally 4,000 to 5,000 people, it was just under 1,000 that were there this year. So not having a comparison point, it, it definitely did feel light. Like there were a lot of rooms that were not very full of people. There were a lot of panels that got canceled. So that's obviously disappointing, but it, it is what it is given the situation. Um, and I was happy that we were able to, to go at all. Same here. I'm in complete agreement. And as uh, some additional personal background for me, uh, my first year was cut off by the pandemic in the sense that I had a fall semester entirely in person in 2019 with no knowledge of an impending global catastrophe. Yeah. <laughs> and then halfway through uh, the spring semester, COVID hit. And then for uh, a year and a half and continuously, it's been a totally uh, different experience with a lot less physical interaction. So I share your appreciation and desire as well to have gotten to the conference for that reason. I had uh, submitted papers to two conferences that were going to be in person uh, in the spring of 2020 prior to COVID breaking out at BU and then at the Northeastern Conference, which uh, is also happening, by the way, this year. And we'll make sure to put a, a link for the, the CFP in the podcast episode description. And also thank you to Jeff for being one of the people uh, that's co-organizing that as a second year. But yeah, I was going to do that and then the BU conference in person uh, back in 2020. Uh, but then both of those were canceled. Then the 2021 Northeastern uh, History Conference, I did virtually, and I wanted to go to an in-person conference, even if I wasn't submitting anything for it, you know, just to be able to, to take in the moment and to network similarly as you had and to learn the state of the field from the practitioners of it, just being there, talking about it. And with that, I particularly appreciated the round table format of the you know, talks and panels that we went to, even though, as you said, there were so many cancellations and every panel, it felt like only had like a 25% strength in terms of how many people were slated to be there and how many people were able to make it. But still, the, each of the panelists made so much of an effort to have a lively discussion going and the fact that it wasn't formal paper paper presentations like these historians were having an authentic minimally scripted conversation about the profession and about their subjects of interest uh, was a lot of fun to to see because of you know how it reflects what where we want to be you know in this field uh -huh. Yeah, and I think that that piece of it is like just seeing the structure of it and the panels, I think was really good for me also, because it's, you know, you get to see like what the, what the organization looks like and, and sort of gain a better understanding of how some of that scholarly collaboration comes about. And so like, for example, for the Northeastern Graduate Student Conference, which is coming up on April 9th this year, thanks for the plug earlier, Adam, like I had originally just been planning to submit any like just a, a term paper that I've been working on that I hope to sort of fashion into an article at some point. And after seeing the sort of structure of, of how they put together those panels at the AHA, now I'm trying to work on on pulling in a couple of other people interested in carceral studies and, and actually trying to organize like a panel around a central theme rather than just sort of getting globbed together with other folks who are sort of tangentially related to what I'm doing, um, which is how, how the graduate student 
conferences that I've seen so far have been sort of structured. And so that's that's neat. And I think that for people who are in the discipline or have been for a long time, it's it's like sort of an obvious point. But I know that for me being early on in, in a PhD program, like stuff like that just keeps popping up where you don't know what you don't know. And like the process for putting together panels was something that I didn't really understand. And so just going and seeing that was was a cool piece of it and, and definitely sort of gets the wheels turning about more collaborative scholarship going forward. Absolutely. And speaking of collaborative scholarship, that seems to be a very large theme of the AHA annual meeting, uh, not only with the panels being put together, but I actually attended this one panel called Beyond Collaboration. But in truth, it was about the the fruits of collaboration instead of uh, eschewing it um, or exceeding it. And it had a focus on the enslaved.org database, uh, which is quite informative and cool, and builds on the slave trade database uh, out of Emory. But then there was another presenter who talked about the work that the London School of Economics is doing with the Smithsonian here to represent the monetary history of West Africa through Smithsonian's learning lab to reach K-12 students. So the public history aspect was huge. And I also saw that with the presidential address with uh, Jacqueline Jones, the new president of the AHA. Uh, She is a professor of history at UT. And her address very much emphasized the necessity for historians to get more publicly engaged and to respond to our moment, particularly as that relates to difficult histories of racism and other forms of marginalization. And I was just wondering, Jeff, if you saw any other common themes from the panels you went to or uh, wanted to add on to that theme that I think we'd both resonate with. Because uh, we, we did go to a lot of the same uh, panels too, which was fun. Like, hey, Jeff, which talk are you going to go to? And it's like, oh, I'm going to go to this one. It's like, oh, yeah, me too. Or oftentimes, I honestly didn't know what I wanted to, to see. And you had great recommendations. Yeah, so like they sort of fell into different buckets. Like I, there were a few that I went to that were sort of more of, I, I guess, like the traditional thing that people might think of when they think of a conference, you know, three or four academic papers around a central theme with a commenter. And if you and finding those that are pertinent to your research interests are super helpful just because you see uh, like scholars modeling like different methodologies and, and things like that that might be useful to you thinking about moving forward. But then there were also ones that sort of were more focused, like what you were just talking about on what the discipline is doing as a whole, how it's interacting with the public, thinking about people who I would definitely say are historians and should be considered historians, uh, but aren't necessarily practicing in the academic sense or, or aren't like in the, the like boundaries of the discipline or whatever, you know, it's so like history teachers and, and people who... and maybe people who aren't in academia, but write, uh, are, are still publishing for, you know, non-academic presses and things like that. And so like we attended one together that was talking about um, the AHA's efforts to address some of the debates going on about school curriculum and, and sort of like the weaponization of the term critical race theory for very political purposes. And that was definitely the one that was most sort of outward facing that I attended. And, and I thought it was really interesting. And it talked about 
they talked about the AHA's efforts to actually shape public policy at a national level and things like that. And, and those are great, you know, and it adds sort of like a mix in what you're, uh, what you're getting out of the conference because it's not all just sort of insular stuffy academia type stuff, which I love, um, but you get sort of some of the more public facing uh, work as well. Um, we attended that panel together also, Adam, and I'm sure that you have some thoughts about what we heard uh, at that. I can't remember the title of it exactly, but maybe you do. Yeah, I pulled it up here. The uh, title is Advocating for History Education, Insights for Historians. And I'll read the session abstract for listeners and then I'll, you know, give my thoughts. And I think we could, we could spend uh, an extended amount of time talking about this panel in particular because it was one of my favorites. Uh, So the description here was that in the ongoing battle over quote unquote divisive concepts legislation in schools, historians find themselves on the front lines. This panel will provide historical context for this controversy and will equip historians with the tools they need to advocate effectively for the professional integrity of history education in the United States. The panel will include historians who combine subject area expertise on relevant issues with experience in legislative and local school board environments. So I especially appreciated the perspective that Hassan Kwame Jeffries, a professor of history at Ohio State University, or I guess the Ohio State University, the Ohio, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, described uh, in regards to the role that the racism of Trump's base, followed by the big lie about the election and efforts to disenfranchise voters, and now this effort to pass anti-CRT legislation intended to stifle uh, the teaching of hard and difficult histories about structural racism, which uh, are not critical race theory at all, really. But even if they were, it wouldn't matter because as I think Dr. Jeffries did such a a good job of articulating, uh, that phrase has been lost to the right-wing propaganda and to these angry parents at school boards. So from his perspective, and I ultimately agree with this, the, the way to fight back against this legislation, and this dovetails with what the AHA is doing, as you had mentioned, to bond to this legislation in the press and through newspapers as, you know, with the, with the imprimatur of, you know, this is the association of American historians. To, to focus on the necessity of teaching difficult, honest history and to not even use the phrase CRT at this point. His talk was definitely the most interesting to me of the three, because just because it, it provided sort of a long view on the historical context. And he, he talked about like basically the right's failure to, to claim that systemic racism isn't real. And so like being anti-critical race theory is just sort of a rhetorical strategy change was one of his main points. And he, and he made this point as well, that ultimately these, the anti-CRT movement, if you want to call it that, I don't know, is, is a political problem that has become personal, which I thought was pretty interesting. Basically that as, as, as families think about it in their lives, and they're basically thinking about the schooling of their children, that this politicized debate which is really just teaching, like, I mean, we're really just talking about teaching about race and racism in U.S. history, like what U.S. history should always be doing. 
but that it's been politicized in this way that has become very personal feeling. And he made this point about it having to do with protecting, like parents feeling this desire to protect their children from harm. And I, I, he, he navigated in a way that I think he was certainly trying to model how one should go about having this debate if you encounter people in your life who don't agree with you when it comes to this, the, this CRT debate. That it, I, like sort of coming at it from an understanding of, of like a desire to protect one's child from a perceived harm, even if that perceived harm is like a, a rhetorical political tool that's been superimposed on their actual educational experience and isn't really there. But it was pretty interesting because then they talked about also, you know, like different strategies for having those conversations. And it was stuff is like down to the nitty gritty of, you know, talking about like citing founding documents to make your point. Or like, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other examples they, they use. But at times it sort of bordered on, on something that I found challenging, which is like at one point, was it Jim Grossman? Was that the, yeah. yeah. Jim Grossman made this point where he was, he talked about trying to find a middle ground in these conversations. And in my notes, I was like, what does a middle ground look like here? If somebody is trying to pass anti-CRT legislation or supports that, and you're trying to say, we should teach about slavery in, in, in US history classrooms. Uh, like, I don't know what that middle ground looks like exactly. And it's, so that's sort of a danger to me of wading into these debates without a clear objective to, um, to like stand against this movement or this political maneuver from the right. But at the same time, I found myself appreciating their desire to give people actual tools, you know, like, like, like tangible strategies of, of what one could do um, to enact change or, or support teachers who want to teach about controversial topics in their classroom and things like that. And then the last thing I'll say about that is that I thought it was really neat because there were a lot of secondary school teachers in the room. And we heard lots of their perspectives on, on what it was like to teach in classrooms right now um, in public institutions and private institutions and big schools and small schools and community colleges and, and you know, elite universities. And there were, there were a lot of different perspectives on it, uh, which I think added a great deal of value to that conversation. I t definitely agree. And I found two things, you know, very enlightening from the feedback from the, the audience. And I also think given how shorthanded uh, a lot of the panels were that what the panelists did uh, was they rethought their roundtable discussions very often and said that we're gonna, you know, leave time for Q and A and for interaction, you know, much sooner than you'd otherwise do. And the two things that, that I gathered from uh, what we heard from those teachers was, first of all, that they so frequently are required to teach to the test that the, their students are not absorbing even the material that is being given to them now. So this fear that kids are being brainwashed uh, in any way, uh, or even in the case of you know, there were teachers from Texas who talked about how their textbooks are, are laden with all of this, uh, you know, far right propaganda. And it's like, well, the, yeah, that shouldn't be there, but, but the textbooks aren't even reaching the kids anyway because of that, that model of teaching. So they're just not 
absorbing or comprehending a whole lot. But then the second thing uh, was related to the pandemic where with school closures and kids taking remote classes from their homes, that parents having to hear uh, and be more aware of what their, their children are being you know, taught because it's you know, so uh, centered in the home now has amplified the anxieties that, that we're seeing with this uh, anti-CRT movement because it was easier to compartmentalize what, you know, someone's, what your kid learns in the classroom from when they come back home when they could go to school in person. And I even asked the panelists about how to deal with the argument that parents will make about how morally speaking, they have a right to keep their children in a state of ignorance. Not an argument I subscribe to, but I just wanted to ask them, you know, how do you answer this like, you know, quasi, uh, you know, school choice argument. And Jim Grossman, also the former uh, president of the AHA uh, last year, um, had made a good point that fine, you can keep your kid ignorant of difficult histories, but uh, good luck getting a five on the AP test or good luck getting into a good school or even getting a, a, you know, a good job down the road. It's like you, you need a solid history education that uh, isn't whitewashed in order to be able to like navigate the world and you know, succeed in it. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that I think speaks to a tension that I felt in that, in that whole conversation. And I don't really know what to do with it, except to point it out, which, and this comes from having taught high school history for six years before coming into this PhD program, that when, when Jim Grossman made that point, and he made another one later where he was talking about a survey that AHA put out to employers where like most employers would want future employees to engage in challenging conversations in school. So like he was basically saying that to make the point that like, if you want to get into these debates right, about, about CRT, and I'm hesitant to call it CRT because it's, like, it's pretty well established that it's not, right, um, that's not what actually is being taught in classrooms, but it's been framed in that way. Anyway, but like, if you want to get into these debates about it, one argument to be made is that, is that employers want this, so it's good for your child to have these challenging conversations, so they're a more employable worker in the future, having had that experience, and like to me, that gets to a fundamental question about what the purpose of education is. You know, there's this guy, David Labory, who has this article that basically questions whether education is a public good or is it a private good? If it's a private good, is it made for social mobility, you know, to, for you individually to climb the ladder? Um, or is it for social efficiency to create good workers? Or is it a public good that it's about like, you know, educated citizens or good citizens. And so there's this interesting debate that I definitely like sort of am weary of the notion that education is for is supposed to be for social efficiency to create good workers. Um, but I see why I see why people have that perspective. But basically what I'm getting at is the challenge of deploying like a paradigm about education to make an argument in this debate, even if you're deploying a paradigm that you don't necessarily agree with or you think is problematic and perhaps at the root cause of why parents are yelling in school board meetings in the first place. And so I, and that was one thing that I found challenging. And then the other one was that a lot of teachers were saying, you know, basically like what we teach kids, you know, they're not retaining any of it anyway. Um, and so we, we went down this hole at one point in that, that panel 
where the conclusion was basically, well, they don't learn anything. High school kids don't learn anything anyway, which I think is really dangerous rhetoric because one, I, I think that you know they may not retain dates and things like that, but they do retain information, right? I like there. You have to have some faith in in that, I think, um, and I hope that most people do. That there's some that some of it is sticking, and not all of it, of course, but some of it is, um, and also that that's sort of like it's a line of thinking that I think undermines teachers as professionals um, by being so fatalistic that I think is really dangerous. Um, and I think that one of the things that AHA should be doing if they want to engage especially with teachers at like the secondary school level, et cetera, is that they should be really trying to encourage a discourse in which we consider teachers professionals, right? That they are historians on par with historians um, who are working in higher ed, that it, their day-to-day looks different, but that they, you know, that they are professionals and they are, they are in a, a job that is like, that has professional standards and that they're, that they should be held to a high standard and they should consider themselves at a high standard. Um, and those are the sorts of things that I think bolster teachers in a way that's good for our national discourse, as opposed to like, well, they're not going to learn anything anyway. Teenagers are so hopeless. Like it just doesn't, I don't think it bodes well because I don't think that's true. And I don't think it's good for how we support teachers in, as we have these conversations. I agree a hundred percent. And I think that the uh, limitation of that panel may have been that the Q&A was a feedback loop that reflected yeah. back that bias of the particular sample of high school teachers that were there or professors who said, oh, when I teach the intro class, I really have to get people up to speed because they apparently learned nothing coming in. But your perspective there is really important as a way to balance out that perception that's quite pernicious that high school students are you know, clueless and brainless uh, because that feeds into the idea anyway that um, the only thing you can do is teach to the test because if they're incapable of critical thinking, the only way you can teach high school is by treating the kids as receptacles for memorizing stuff because they're not going to retain it anyway. So we might as well just herd them through when the real value of public engagement by the historical profession, including those high school teachers, is to stimulate this critical thinking. And I think we definitely both see eye to eye on that. There was another panel I went to that resonates, I think, with what uh, you had described, Jeff, about education as a public good versus a private good. And this was a panel called Making the Case for History, Curriculum, Enrollments, Advocacy, and Equity. And I really liked this panel because it had four department chairs at different uh, universities and colleges, a lot of them small. uh, And some of the chairs uh, were uh, in departments where most of the students are commuters. And uh, when it came to remote classes, there was a digital divide, you know, with internet access and, you know, all these other things where, you know, these were schools that weren't well endowed and didn't necessarily have a lot of people uh, trying to become history majors. So they really had to think about creative ways to get people to uh, major or minor or even to sign up for the the gen ed classes uh, with creative namings of the courses, updated thematic content. So that was uh, really enlightening to see, uh, you know, how these department chairs, you know, looked back at their their attempts to, uh, 
you know, think about like the value of history. And they talked about something related to careers because they, they talked about how when it came to convincing parents, when they would hold like department level open houses, that their children should major or minor in history, that they had to make the very economistic appeal to the extent that their alumni went on to these lucrative professions uh, and use their history degree every day as doctors, lawyers, business people, and so on. And I had asked a question which was related to, and also critical of this, this idea that they were promoting about like the soft skills uh, of history. You know, I had referred back to how one of the history chairs had said that at his institution, his students were very involved in Mobile, Alabama with the Equal Justice Initiative led by Brian Stevenson and um, were very uh, involved with the, the public history world. Uh, as, you know, a practical thing, you know, for the major. And I had said that wouldn't it make more sense to talk about the, like, historical careers available to students? Like, if you got the history major, you could work in a museum, you could work uh, with NPS, you could work with the Equal Justice Initiative, or you could become a teacher, and we need more of those. And uh, the reply I got from the chairs was basically, while we sympathize with that, we ultimately find that the parents are more receptive to your kid can join the private sector and make more money. And they also spoke to the reality of there simply not being enough jobs for the history track with NPS or teaching or working in museums that, you know, they found that they needed to emphasize instead more of the private good. But I still have hope for treating history as a public good. I mean, we are PhD students after all. It, it does, I mean, it ultimately comes down to like, as much as I believe that too, and I'm like, I like it. I also recognize that not everyone is gonna believe that, you know, that history, the, the studying history is a virtuous life endeavor and it should be undertaken for that reason alone. Like I, it's just not what's gonna happen. And even though I enjoy looking at it that way, but at the end of the day, I mean, there are universities, there are structures that, that have a, a budget that has to meet, that, you know, they have to meet certain line items and they have to hit certain recruitment numbers and admissions. And um, the history department is trying to fight for its budget and get a chunk of that. And, and they need students to enroll. And so you sort of, I, I think it's a bigger issue of universities at large that students are treated as, as consumers rather than, I don't know, like young minds to be shaped or something like that. But, you know, it, you just can't separate it from the from the larger economy. And, and that is what it is. And I, I do appreciate as much as I want to hold on to these idealistic perspectives on education. And I do appreciate when people kind of get down to brass tacks also and say, this is how the profession is going to stay alive in, in the context of a larger economy that, you know, isn't going to change tomorrow. Speaking of the, you know, underlying political background, too, because we were talking about the divisive concepts legislation being pushed in uh, red states that two of the department chairs talked about how 
in their states of Alabama and Arkansas, respectively, because these are deep red states, their legislatures had passed history requirements for college students saying that they had to take like two semesters full of like history and civics. And of course that's coming from this like, you know, conservative whitewashed perspective about, you know, history as preparing for uh, a nationalistic worldview, like having to teach American history so that the children learn to love America. But, you know, these chairs have used it strategically from a budgetary perspective and, you know, from maintaining their, their place in the university where it's like, you, you legally require that the kids take history. So you can't, you can't get rid of us uh, for that reason. So, you know, the, the chairs, you know, credited those laws with guaranteeing that they have lots of students filling their classrooms. And then that provides an opportunity to get more people involved in the major, if you're able to do it right with the divisional courses. Yeah, and that's, you know, all of that also speaks to something that, you know, as we were talking about education or history education in particular is a public or private good, even if thinking about it as a public good, like if you're trying to like, quote unquote, create good citizens or create a, like a common understanding of history, like that can obviously be just as pernicious as thinking about education as purely like a tool in your toolbox to make more money, um, you know, sort of the credentialism piece of it. And so it also just has to do with how, and this is where I think that what's happening within the academic discipline does matter because I think that the way that history is framed, um, are we trying to, you know, trying to revise old narratives and challenge old perspectives and, and include voices that haven't been included by older histories and things like that. I think, I do think that that does trickle down in meaningful ways into into classrooms at all levels. And there, I think something like the AHA is really useful. And I think it's great. And I would hope that more people outside of higher ed attend for that purpose, because I think that some of those, those innovative ideas about history and how we're studying history, they can reach, like we talk about being public historians. I think one of the ways that you, you reach a lot of people is getting those new perspectives into the like classrooms below the college or university level. Definitely. And I thought that the panels were so accessible. So the the barriers would then come from promoting it to a general public and making the format of the conference accessible to people outside of our discipline and academic bubble in other ways beyond the content, because I would not be convinced by anyone saying that the problem is our content is too esoteric, not at all. In fact, I think that the panels we had were so responsive to public need and to expanding accessibility to the message. And one panel in particular really opened my eyes to how responsive the AHA was uh, to just what's going on around us with a panel called From Plessy versus Ferguson to Plessy and Ferguson. This was a late breaking panel that was put together by Jacqueline Jones, AHA president, about the recent pardoning by Governor John Bell Edwards in Louisiana of Homer Plessy. 
the Black man who had uh, protested the segregated train cars in New Orleans in the 1890s and who became the test case for the Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson to lamentably rule that separate but equal was equal. And the descendants of Homer Plessy in the uh, form of Keith Plessy, the first cousin three generations removed, and Phoebe Ferguson, the great-great-granddaughter of the Judge Ferguson, who initially handed the guilty verdict to Homer Plessy for violating the segregation ordinance. Uh, The two of them, whose families were on opposite sides of the case, came together and became lifelong friends and created this foundation around 2007, 2008, in order to educate students throughout Louisiana about the case. And were also instrumental in mobilizing support for the pardon. And they, in the panel, talked about uh, how awe-inspiring the pardoning ceremony was and the importance of looking back at that case and its legacy, and then the work at the foundation as well. So that panel was so informative for me and also I think would be something that a lot of people from many different walks of life would want to see. And it ultimately comes down to promoting the the AHA more. I mean, I I was also impressed by how the AHA had banners on street lamps uh, along the the street uh, where the Marriott was. Um, I think it was uh, Canal Street, but yeah, I mean, we were able to see, I mean, there were the uh, Sugar Bowl (laughs) banners. And then after that, you know, as the trolleys went by, there were the AHA banners. I'm not sure how many people noticed them or would have known about how to see the conference, but yeah, no, I think you're, you're definitely right. And one other thought I have about the, the AHA meeting is that attending really increased my appreciation for where we are in this field, because I think that with being in like a grad program, that's kind of, you know, unto itself, you know, and that like kind of like a bubble. And then with COVID, exacerbating that that feeling of not being connected to the larger field and like an in-person networking sense that going to that meeting made me feel more than ever like a historian in training. I agree with that and I think that a lot of that comes from not only interacting in terms of like attending interesting panels um, and learning from scholars who are working there but also like if you if you can do some some level of networking while you're there um, and meet scholars who are in the same field as you um, or interested in the same things. And so like I got to meet a couple of scholars whose work has been really influential on my own research. And, you know, just just putting a face to the name and, and sitting around and having coffee for half an hour, I, I would say feels like one of the most valuable things that comes out of that time there, just because like you know you you've formed some connections with folks who uh you can bounce work off of or or get ideas from and get feedback from um and it definitely makes you feel like there is a larger sort of like a larger community within the discipline that is that can be supportive and helpful and i was amazed at the extent to which everybody that i interacted with that i was looking forward to talking to as like you know a lowly second year phd student um nobody sort of shooed me away everybody was excited to talk and you know willing to offer up 
introductions to other people and, and, and look at work that I'm doing. And I mentioned earlier that I'm getting in touch with two other graduate students put together a panel for Northeastern's graduate conference that came via connection with somebody at AHA. So I, I mean, that piece of it is great. And I think it's really cool. And especially after coming through the starting the program in the pandemic, it's, it's awesome to have that experience. Even as I know that, I mean, I know that the AHA happening was extremely controversial. And like, I don't know if you, if you paid enough attention to Twitter, uh, you know, as, as good an experience we had, there are plenty of people with good reasons to be upset that it happened. And I think the AHA caught a lot of criticism both before, during, and after. And so that's sort of an interesting side of it also that I, you know, I, I wouldn't presume to dismiss even, even though I had a great experience there. Same here. And, you know, we talked about the, the value of critical thinking from a history education perspective. So I welcome that critical thinking as well uh, within our profession and in the digital space, because we have to be, you know, conscientious of the um, complications still of holding these in-person events. And while, you know, we were there and, um, you know, had a, a great experience that, you know, many people have, you know, different circumstances, different risk tolerances. And it's a good thing that the AHA maybe in response to this, but I'm sure they were planning this earlier, uh, decided to have the virtual gathering as well for next month. When I did hear about that news, part of me kind of thought, why is this still happening then if they're just going to do the conference all yeah. over again <laughs> online? But um, the trip to New Orleans was great. Uh, and I guess with a, a final concluding fun question, what was something about New Orleans itself that you appreciated if this was like the first time that you were there? It was definitely my first time in New Orleans, but yeah, just some, something about the city. It was my first time there also. And I think it, New Orleans gets it gets sort of mixed reviews because there's definitely like, like the streets are not clean. You know, there's like, like, like they're the fact that they're, especially where we were, you know, we were right off of Bourbon street. And so my perspective is definitely impacted by that a little bit, but like there's the residue of, of like partying happening um, that I think turns some people off to that area. But when you walk around, like it's beautiful. Um, Like the buildings are amazing and they're, it's all very historic and, it, like it is like a beautiful city to walk around and and look at what's going on and it's it's really like sort of an exciting place to walk around you know like there's lots of people in the street there's lots of you know people want to stop and chat um like it, like it's it's a pretty cool city to walk around in the other piece is chicory coffee never had chicory coffee before and so we got to learn what that was um and i thought that that was pretty awesome too so I would definitely, I'd love to go back to New Orleans someday and have more time to explore. I thought it was great. I agree. Chicory coffee sounds awesome. I should have ordered that. I ordered uh, plenty of beignets, uh, which uh, we shared as well. And I was bummed that I learned the day before, the night before our flight, that Cafe Beignet, where we frequented uh, did not have the best beignets in the city, that it was Cafe yeah. Du Monde. And I'm like, dang it, I missed the opportunity. But hey, they were still pretty good. I would say one of the most fun things I enjoyed in the city was uh, experiencing live jazz. 
Uh, I got in the Wednesday night before the, the conference started and I was just walking around enjoying the, you know, beautiful buildings and, uh, you know, the street performers and just all the people around. And I heard the music and I'm like, it's calling me. And I walked in, it was this tiny place. And, you know, just, just being able to witness that, you know, felt like, you know, true New Orleans. And I was like, yep, yeah, that made the trip worth it if nothing else, but there was a lot else, you know, especially with the panels and the cool history stuff. So thank you so much, Jeff, for being on the podcast. And I really appreciated, uh, you know, being able to attend the AHA meeting with you. And you've been listening to the Breaking History podcast, a production of the Northeastern University History Graduate Student Association. Our producers and sound editors are Cassie Cloutier and Benjamin Gray. Our theme music was composed by Kieran Legg. Uh, your host today has been Adam Tomasi. I was here with Jeff Lamson. And until next time, thanks for listening.